section, let me just remind you of where Matthew is beginning at. He's writing from a particular perspective. He's writing to prove to the Jewish people, a religious audience, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the, the Mashiach, as they would say in Hebrew, the, the Christ, the anointed one that they've been waiting on for thousands of years. They've been waiting on uh, this man that would come and he would be a prophet and he would be a king and he would be a, a priest, all rolled into one. But like we are, they like the king part. Right? They pick out the part they like the most. Like, we need a king. We need someone to come in and stomp on some Roman people. And so the Jews were excited about getting Jesus the king, but not nearly as excited about Jesus the priest or Jesus the prophet. So they, they tended to, to pick and choose. But for uh, Matthew, he's going to write to this uh, Jewish audience, again, from this vantage point of Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So in chapter 1, he begins with the family lineage. If he's going to be the king of kings, he must come from a kingly line, in particular, the line of David. And so that's why we see a genealogy to start off the book of Matthew. Chapter 2, we see the birth of the king, and he has a miraculous birth where he fulfilled the prophecies written about in Isaiah. Many of you with this Christmas week would have read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, right? Be, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And so from that prophecy, we see Jesus fulfilling that with his birth. Now the key word throughout the entire book of Matthew is the word fulfilled. He uses this word more than any of the other gospel accounts, that Jesus came to fulfill the word of God. Now, chapter 3 is the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. So every great king is going to have a forerunner to go before him. And so this is what we see in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, if Jesus is to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's what John the Baptist said of him, then he must be perfect. He must be without spot or blemish, just like the Passover lamb that they would take into the house. And so chapter 4 is the temptation of Christ, which proves that he was, in fact, worthy to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now then, chapters 5 through 7, we have the first uh, teaching of Jesus, and his ministry looked like this. It was uh, first teaching, and then preaching, and then healing. And so he begins his ministry with a, a, a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 through 7. And in that sermon, what he's trying to direct us in and what he's trying to inform us about is how to live in the kingdom of God. How to, what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like, it's going to look like people living in righteousness. And so he begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man who does these things. That word blessed, you might remember, is oh how happy. Oh how happy is the man who does these things. And so he gives us these instructions and then in chapters 8 through 9, what we've been working on the last several weeks, he then shows what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. He gives us a preview as, as people are coming to be healed, healed by the Savior. And so 10 different healings actually take place through these two chapters. We've covered six of them, and we're about to unfold and look at the last four this morning. So pick up with me, if you would, in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 9. While he, Jesus, spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Verse 20, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. 
For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when, she, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well that very hour, or immediately is the idea. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw flute players and noisy crowd wailing, and he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out into all the land. And so these next two healings are actually interwoven. And we're going to take them apart and actually look at them individually, but it's important to understand that, that these stories were uh, intertwined for a reason. So we're going to begin by looking at the, the little girl who was healed, who was on the deathbed. And her father, what Mark and Luke tell us, is his name was actually Jairus. Jairus comes to Jesus, and he's got a problem on his hands. His daughter is, is nearly dead, or in this account, he says she has died. And what he does, interestingly enough, is the first thing he does is he comes to Jesus and worships him. Now, this may just look like flyover territory, but I think we need to understand something about Jairus. In verse 18, we're told he's a ruler. That means he was uh, like our elders or our deacons in the Jewish synagogue. This was a man of, of high reputation. He was one of the leaders of his church, a church, by the way, full of Pharisees who just in the previous section were ridiculing Jesus. So this man comes uh, with the understanding that that he is going to be completely outcast from the synagogue, but he's got a major problem on his hands, right? He's a, he's a desperate man. His child is in need of a Savior. And so what he does is he comes and he falls down on his knees and he worships. Now, for good little Jewish boys and Jewish girls, uh, they might not have gone to church every week, but what they did know is the, the top ten list that Moses gave in Exodus 20, uh, number one is you are to put no other gods before me. You are to worship no one else other than God. So now Jairus has taken this a step further. He's actually gone to worship this man. Now throughout uh, the Bible, if you do the Bible reading plan, what you'll find is that uh, people will inadvertently try to worship a different creation from time to time. Uh, one such person would be uh, John the Apostle as an example. John the Apostle uh, inadvertently worships an angel in Revelation 22. And here's what the angel says in Revelation 22.9. John writes, I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel. And he said to me, see that you do not do that. Stop worshipping me, for I am your fellow servant, your brethren, your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. That's what the angel said. And yet here in this spot, notice with me, uh, Jesus doesn't say a word about not worshiping him. That's because he was God. <laughs> That's what he's essentially telling all the people that would have witnessed this. Jairus would have believed that he was God, and Jesus would have accepted that worship as God. So if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find different points in time where uh, men will actually worship create, cre seemingly angels, but when we see that worship is actually accepted, that's actually a prefigurement of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So if you're taking notes, one spot to go is Joshua chapter 5. 
I'll look at it quickly there with you. And Joshua in this story is getting ready to go fight the battle of Jericho. So uh, he's getting ready. They've just crossed over the Jordan River. They're getting ready to take their first major city in the promised land. It's a double-walled city of Jericho. Seemingly impenetrable. That's a big word for me to get out this morning. Impenetrable city. And Jesus gives him the great battle plan of, hey, I want you to go into battle with trumpets. Wow, that's an awful plan. I mean, you have to know if you're Joshua, like, can't we take a sword, a stick, a rock, something? No, I'm going to have you take a trumpet. And then you're going to march around the city and not say anything until the seventh day you get to march seven times. It's an awful battle plan. And you know Joshua's rolling through this in his mind, like, how is this going to work out? And so the morning before they're to march to Jericho, what he looks out onto and sees in Joshua chapter 5 is he sees a man, uh, verse 13 is where I'm at if you're following along, a man stood opposite of him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And so he sees this man who is obviously some kind of a soldier, and he is decked out. He's probably huge, and he's got his sword pointed, and Joshua says, hey, are you for us or are you for the other guys? And the man answered and said, no. Are you for us or against us? No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. So he doesn't answer, are you for us or against us? Because the real question that Joshua needed to ask is, are you with me or are you against me? He goes on in the next section to say that Joshua fell on his face and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord command his servant? And then the commander of the army of the Lord said, take off your sandal for you're on holy ground. This person, this angelic being accepted worship because that was Jesus in the Old Testament, you see. So as we come back to our story at hand, we see what Jairus is doing is he is worshiping at the feet of Jesus, something that the Jewish people held very near and dear, and yet he was willing out of his desperation to put his reputation completely on the line. Now then moving down through the story, Jesus makes his way to Jairus' house. We'll come back and, and pick up on the middle of this story in just a minute. But he gets word that his daughter has actually died, is what Luke chapter 8 tells us. On his way, they come and say, teacher, they come to say, your daughter is dead, leave the teacher alone. I mean, these are really kind people. Hey, your daughter's dead, leave Jesus alone. Thanks a lot. But Jesus tells him in Luke chapter 8, only believe. Only believe is his instruction to this man Jairus. And so they make their way to the house, and when they get there, uh, he tells the crowd, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now sleep throughout Scripture is, is metaphorical of death. And so we see that, that it has a lot of similarities to death. Uh, for one, if you're a parent uh, on Christmas, if you've got uh, six kids like I do, you know that uh, sleep, it, like death, is temporary. You're not going to get nearly enough of it, right? Somebody's going to come in at 5 o'clock in the morning and remind you as if you forgot that it's Christmas because sleep is only temporary. And what Jesus is saying is that death is synonymous in the sense that it is only uh, temporary. It, in other words, transitioning from this life to the next, uh, it's a pit stop, not a permanent stop. So the transition is, is to be from one place uh, to the next, and yet the crowd 
ridiculed him. All the people that were gathered there in the house mourning the death of this little girl, the friends, the family, the, the people that they're wailing, when Jesus says this, they immediately stop wailing and they begin to mock. Now the reason was because Jesus is looking at this thing through an eternal windshield. Do you understand that when we see things happening in our lives, we're always looking at them through the perspective of our windshield. However we look out, it, it, sometimes it's a splattered, smattered windshield. Have you ever drove down the Westfield blacktop in July at night? Right? That's the kind of windshield that I have oftentimes. It's bang, splat, and then I try to use the windshield wiper thing with the fluid, and the fluid's gone. And so the next thing you know, I'm just smearing bug guts all over the windshield. I can't see anything. And oftentimes, I think we go through life like this, right? Like our, our windshield is bug splattered, bug smeared messes, and this is the spot these mockers are in. They can't see what Jesus is up to because they don't have an eternal perspective. They don't have a windshield that's clear like what his is to see that this is merely a temporary problem for him. And so, the first thing Jesus does is he puts the crowd outside. And I want to stop there because it's important to note that, that mockers must be removed if we're going to see the miraculous happen. That the mocking, the jeering, the skepticism, the doubt has to be taken away in order for the miracle to take place. Now the issue for these people, this, these family and these friends that had gathered, it's that they had little faith. They had what, what I call meatloaf faith. Right? So you're all staring at me like I've got a third eyeball. What in the world? Meatloaf faith. It goes a little something like this. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. No, no, I won't do that. Right? They're going, anything for you, Jesus. We'll do anything you ask us to do. In our family, it's God first, and then family, and then work. Unless it's Saturday, or I'm getting double time. And then work's going to move up a little bit. Sorry, Jesus. It's, it's anything for you, Jesus. But, but surely not that thing. That, that's that mocking, that, that, that cynicism that comes up. And it's important to understand that while we need to remove the mockers from our lives, if we're going to see the miraculous happen, we also need to remove the mocker from within too. <laughs> the skepticism that rises up in each one of us. That surely not, there's no way Jesus could be saying to do this thing. I cannot believe he could possibly overcome this. But here's the deal. If I don't deal with the doubt, I'm never going to see resurrection. The same is true for all of us today. If we want to see resurrection in the lives of the people around us, we have to first deal with doubt. Now then in Mark chapter 5, he, what he goes on to explain in the synoptic accounts is that Jesus walks in, he takes the little girl by the hand, and he says in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, arise. And immediately she arises. The next thing that his account says is that Jesus tells him, now get her something to eat. Right? She, she's had a hard go of things, it's time for her to have a sandwich. Now, we might wonder, why in the world would Jesus say to eat? And here's the reason, at least I believe here's the reason, uh, because ghosts don't eat. If this was just an aberration, if this was just a figment of their imagination, she wasn't going to be able to sit down and eat with them. If you've ever seen Sixth Sense, what does Bruce Willis not do? You never see him eat, right? There you go. Using Hollyweird to point out what Jesus is trying to prove. 
So he tells them to feed the little girl. And so we see the, the seventh miracle is the rising of Jairus' daughter. But then, meanwhile, in the middle of this scene, as Jesus is making his way uh, to this man's house, to Jairus' house, on the way we're told by the other accounts that he is thronged by the crowds, that the, the news of him has gone out to, to everyone around, and so they are pressing down upon him. And so as he's making his way that direction, verse 20, suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. So on comes this woman who has had a flow of blood, and we understand that this is most likely a menstrual in origin. And so she has had, uh, not trying to be overly graphic, but, but she has literally been on her period for 12 years. You can imagine the awful state of things. And so this is what she has experienced, and she was no doubt at this point, uh, she was weak from the blood loss. Right, that, that continual flow of blood left her low on iron. She would have been anemic. And, and yet still, what we find is she presses in to get to Jesus. The second thing I want to point out about this woman is that she was shamed by society. So by societal standards, uh, unless you as a female in a Jewish uh, society were able to have children, uh, you were considered accursed. And so here she is, obviously with her condition, she's unable to have children. Not to mention the fact that uh, if she was married, she was unable to be intimate with her husband, which no doubt would have caused him to leave her. So now she's doubly distressed. She's now divorced, and she's without child. And so you see the shame that's upon her. And then thirdly, she is ceremonially unclean. For females, when they go through this uh, one week, they are considered to be a ceremonially unclean and unable to go to the synagogue to worship. So here's a lady who for 12 years has been unable to go to the synagogue to worship, which means when the synagogue is the centerpiece of all society, it means that she cannot partake in, in society. She's an outcast. She's on the outside looking in, unable to worship in any way. And so she, she determines in her mind, in her weakened state, she has enough in her to want to go and find Jesus. And in verse 21, she says to herself, if I may only touch his garment, I may be made well. She's heard the stories about him from all around, that this man can heal me, and if I can just get to him and touch his garment, then I can be healed. And so for her, the, the shawl was a touch point of Jesus. That this, this talit is what it's called in Hebrew. This is actually a prayer shawl. The, the men would wear them. They'd be draped over their shoulders. And at the end, there'd be little knots. In fact, there's 613 knots in a Jewish talit that indicate one knot for each one of the laws throughout the entire Old Testament. 613. And you thought you just had to keep the top 10, right? There you go. You better be very thankful for Jesus. You don't have to worry about none of that. So she, her idea was if I could just get to him and touch his talit, the talit for the Jewish male was a picture of holiness. It was his righteousness. So what she understood is maybe his righteousness could make up for my unrighteousness. She understood a whole lot more about the Bible than what many Christians do sitting in church. That we need the righteousness of Christ to replace our lack of righteousness. And so she comes to him, she touches him, but again, it's important to understand that there was nothing special about the shawl. It was just a touch point for her to get close to Jesus. No different than 
baptism or communion. These things are not to be made the thing. The thing is always Jesus. It points back to Him. These are touch points, ways for us to connect with Him. Then in Luke's account, Jesus turns around and He says, Who touched me? This is His question. He looks around. He realizes power had left Him and He asked a question to His disciples, Who touched me? To which you have to love Peter's response. Peter, always willing to throw it out there, he goes, Lord, look around. There's all these people. And you're going to say, who touched me? Really? We're being thronged with people. So it causes people to ask throughout time, is did Jesus really not know who touched him? Maybe Jesus was confused. Maybe he, he was more human than we thought. Now I would propose to you, he very much knew who it was that touched him. But what he was trying to do was draw faith out of this woman. She had enough faith to pursue him. She had enough faith to fight out off the crowds, to find him, to touch him. And now the question is, do you have enough faith to follow me? Do you have that kind of faith? Or will you not do that? So he asks the question, growing faith out of her. You know, he does the same thing for us today. He asks questions that he already knows the answer to, to draw faith out of you and I. And then notice what, when, when she finally has enough courage to come forward, he tells her in verse 22, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Your belief, your faith is the thing that made you well. But notice what he calls her. He calls her daughter. This is a woman for over a decade who probably hasn't had a kind thing said about her to her by anyone. Her family, her friends, she's a complete outcast. And Jesus, this man that everyone wants a piece of, he says, daughter. You can imagine the touch that would have been to her heart. And so often what we look at is we, we look at our bloody mess, right? And for this woman, it was a bloody, stinking mess. And we say, listen, surely Jesus can't deal with this. Surely he doesn't want to have anything to do with this mess but it doesn't matter if it's a a 12 year old girl who is full of life until she was not or if it's a woman who's been living in hell for 12 years and she was as good as dead neither one of these cases was too much for the king of kings well, let's continue on to the next story and the next miracle in verse 27 when jesus, when jesus departed from there two men followed him crying out and saying uh, excuse me two blind men followed him crying out saying son of david have mercy on us and when he had come into the house the blind men came to him and jesus said to them do you believe that i am able to do this and they said to him yes lord and then he touched their eyes saying according to your faith let it be to you and their eyes were opened and jesus sternly warned them saying see that no one knows it but when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all the country. And so what we find in verse 27, and I love the humor in the Bible, we find blind men following Jesus. I mean, how in the world did two blind men find Jesus? These guys apparently were pretty crafty. They, they figured out how to follow Jesus. They, they find him, and look, these guys might have been blind, but they were not deaf. They had heard what was going on in and around Capernaum, and they had heard uh, that, that he was offering up mercy, and they also knew enough to know the Old Testament Scriptures. They called him Son of David, his messianic title. 
So they refer to Jesus as son of David, and then they ask for mercy. In our previous section last week, what did we look at? Jesus is telling the Pharisees in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So look, Jesus desires mercy. He's offering up mercy. What is mercy? It's compassion in action. And so he's offering it up, and this is what they ask for. Also notice with me their persistence. This is the common thread we see in all these miracles is that the people are persistent with their pursuit of Jesus. What I mean by that is that the men actually have to go inside the house to get to him. If you know anyone with a visual impairment that suffers from, from blindness or a lack of sight, what's one thing you know for sure is that they are uncomfortable being in places where they don't know their way around. They're, they're, they're afraid they're going to stumble, slip, fall. They can't see what's going on. And so Jesus has them come into a house that they've never been into before to operate on faith. And so they're able to shuffle in there. They get to Jesus, and then he opens their eyes. And so for the first time, I love this part of the story, what do they see? They see Jesus. When their eyes are finally opened, they see him. Do you understand that each time our eyes are open spiritually, that's what we hope to see. We hope to see Jesus. The first glimpse, that, that's the thing we're all looking forward to. Someday when we get to heaven, the first thing we're going to see is him. And so what he does, again, he draws out their faith. He invites these men into the house to draw faith out of them. And yet the question has to be asked, well, what about my thing? <laughs> right? What about my situation that's all wonderful jesus is healing stuff and he's going around touching people and the blind are seeing but what about what about me like i've got things that i've prayed about that i've been told to take to him and yet it's not healed does that mean i have a lack of faith does my not seeing healing happen mean that i don't have faith and i would tell you absolutely abjectly no it does not mean you have a lack of faith the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Probably the greatest Christian in the entire New Testament. Out of your 27 books, he wrote 13 of them. Paul probably had some faith. And yet, he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that three times he prayed for this thorn in his flesh to be removed. And when Paul says thorn, by the way, he actually uses the same word as a tent stake. He's talking about one of those gigantic 18-inch long thorns, stakes stuck in him. We don't know exactly what his physical malady is, but he prayed three times for God to release it from him, and God told him in verse 9 of chapter 12, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace, my unmerited favor, the thing you don't deserve is good enough for you. It is sufficient for you. And so if you're in a spot where your thing has not been healed, understand first of all, his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient today. His grace is sufficient tomorrow. His grace is sufficient for all of eternity for salvation. That it's by grace through faith that we're saved. And so his grace is enough. Uh, secondly, if you're in a spot where you're, you've gone through trials and tribulations and your thing wasn't healed, I'm going to turn with you back to Psalm 84. This is what the psalmist writes uh, concerning mourning. Psalm 84, verse 5, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on the pilgrimage, right? We're just passing through this life. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make a spring 
and the rain also covers it with pools. They, may, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now you're wondering, what in the world does that mean? As we go through this pilgrimage, and we pass through the Valley of Baca, which is actually translated the Valley of Tears, the Valley of Weeping specifically, as we go through situations and trials and tribulations, do you understand that people are watching you? People are watching you pass through that thing, especially now with social media, where there's literally a group for everything. You, people are watching, how do you handle it? How, how are you dealing with this thing? Do you, do you, how are you keeping your faith so strong? And what the psalmist is writing is that as you go through the valley of weeping, your tears actually create uh, pools, springs, and those springs become refreshment to the people to follow to build strength, strength to strength. So as you go through your thing, there are hidden blessings in that because people are going to follow you up and they're going to find strength from your strength. They're actually going to find your tears to be refreshment to them as they're encouraged and built up watching you deal with these things. Finally, in Romans Chapter 5, this is what Paul writes concerning trials and tribulations. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says, but we also glory in tribulations. How many of you have gloried in tribulation today? Yeah, me neither. Paul says we glory in tribulations because tribulations produce perseverance. And per perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So as we persevere, as we go through our challenges, our battles, our struggles, that that perseverance builds character, and character builds hope. And hope is the thing that right now in 2020 has been squeezed out of people all over. Just take a look around. And what is the hope in? The hope is in God's salvation, His Holy Spirit. He's going to deliver us from this thing where one day there is no more cancer, there is no more COVIDs, there is no more struggles, there is no more of this. This is the hope that we have to rely upon. And, and here's the thing, that all who call on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. That's not an if, that's not a maybe, that's not a might be, but all, and if you translate all from both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word means all. It's the same word. It's all. And they shall be saved. Now then, continuing on, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, we see the, the final miracle here. Miracle number 10. As they went out, this is the disciples now leaving from there, behold, they brought a man to him, mute, and demon-possessed. And when the demon uh, was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. We'll cover more on that verse in a few weeks. But notice with me, he's brought this demon-possessed man who's also a mute. He's unable to speak. Now in Israel, it was not uncommon for rabbis and priests to actually perform exorcisms, but they had a, a playbook that they went by, and sometimes it worked really well, and sometimes it didn't. Their, their playbook was sometimes successful, sort of like my Colts, about eight and eight, typically. You know, sometimes we're good, sometimes we're terrible. You never quite know. 
And, and so the exorcisms uh, sometimes worked out, but then other times, if you want to look at an example of this with me, Acts chapter 19, uh, the, the priests would attempt to perform an exorcism. And in this spot, these men in, in chapter 19, verse 13, they said, we, they try to exorcise this demon. And they say, we exorcise you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And, and then we go on down and the demon says to them in verse 15, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? In verse 16, and the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them overpowered them, prevailed against them, and so they fled out of the house wounded and naked. I love the Bible. So they tried to exercise this demon by the name of uh, Paul whom Jesus preached, or Jesus whom Paul preached, and the demon jumped on them and beat their clothes right off of them. Sorry, maybe nobody else likes Bible humor, but I do. So here's these dudes running out of the house naked. Sometimes it didn't work is the point. But part of the playbook was you had to have the demon tell you its name in order to exercise it. And Jesus actually followed this playbook a few weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 8. He asked the demon, what's your name? And the demon says, legion, for we are many. And that was the demon that he cast out into the swine they ran off the hill. And yet in this spot, the man is mute. So how are you going to exercise a demon when the man can't speak? And the answer is, for this man, there was no hope. That as this man was trapped there in his body with the demon, there was no chance that he was going to be exercised at all. He was never going to be free from this thing that he was dealing with daily and daily and daily. And if you've ever been addicted or struggled with addiction or know someone who struggled with addiction, let me just tell you from personal experience, there is, there is a feeling of no hope. I'm never going to get past this thing. I'm never going to find a way out of this spot. I am trapped in this place. And so this is what Jesus uh, is going to deliver this man from who cannot speak. And, and here's what we learn from this story is that we are not to put parameters on Jesus. <laughs> we are not to say, you cannot do this, you cannot do that because for, again, for Je Jehovah Sabaoth, I love that name for him, the Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, this demon was no match for him oftentimes we have this picture in our head like like jesus and the devil they're brothers and they're in some kind of arm wrestling match and they're going back and forth and and jesus is making some headway on the devil and then the devil starts making headway back on jesus and then all of a sudden jesus does the lincoln hawk move anybody seen over the top that's where you go like this and then wham and he nails jesus we get that picture in our mind right like jesus is lincoln hawk I turn the hat sideways. But the reality is, he's no Lincoln Hawk. This is no match for Jesus. One word spoken, one touch, and the demon is gone. Completely done away with. And for you children that were born after 1990, go back and watch Over the Top so you understand what that reference means. Right? It's an awesome movie. The point is that, that in... If this is your thing, if you are trapped in a spot, will you give it to him? Will you allow him to have access into your life and trust that Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, can deliver you from that thing, even if you can't speak of it? Now continuing on in verse 35, and then Jesus went about 
all the circuit and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease and among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep that had no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the workers are few. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so we see Jesus. He looks out upon the people, and what he sees is sheep who have gone astray. Now, sheep uh, is how you, you are, throughout the Bible, we are compared to sheep. Have you ever thought about that comparison, by the way, that we are sheep? Uh, sheep are, are actually, uh, they are, uh, they're dumb. <laughs> Did you know that about sheep? They are, they are dumb. They've got little bitty spindly legs. They don't have any defense system whatsoever. They don't have any awesome claws. they got no cool fangs that they can defend themselves with. So they're, they're not only dumb, but they're defenseless. And, and then they're, they're so dumb that if, they, if they're just left on their own, they'll eat. And they'll eat and they'll eat in one spot until they've killed all the vegetation in the area. And the entire time they're gorging themselves. Yes, I'm talking to all of us after Christmas. Uh, as they're gorging themselves, they'll, af- they'll actually defecate where they eat. And then they'll, then they'll eat their own defecation. How does that make you feel? Uh, now they'll, they'll grow actually uh, parasites then in their intestines if they're not moved on to the next spot to eat by the shepherd. Now the only thing that they can do is they can grow some awesome hair. They can grow some wool. But the thing is, if they're not sheared by the shepherd, if they're not kept uh, maintained, they actually grow so much wool that they get top-heavy, and then their little spindly legs can't hold them up. So then they flop over on their back, and they lay upside down, unable to roll back over, while the sun, meantime, uh, bakes their little bellies. And then the gastrointestinal juices heat up, and then they explode. (laughs) You all are sheep. That's what the Bible says. We're sheep. On top of that, Jesus looks at these sheep and he has compassion. He sees that they're tired. They're weary. Life has got them worn down, beat down, and they need someone to come alongside them and defend them. They need a shepherd, someone like David. If you remember David, when, he, when he's getting ready to go fight Goliath, he shows up as a 15, 16-year-old boy there, and his brothers are out fighting, but he's the youngest, and he wants to defend his nation against this uncircumcised Philistine. And so he goes to the king, and he wants to fight, and, and the king's like, all right, what in the world's your resume, little guy? And he's like, well, I'm out with the sheep all night long, and, and bears and lions come up against them, and I just grab them by the beard, and I stab them. Oh, David was a tough dude, right? That sheep need defended like David would defend his sheep. They also need to be uh, protected in the sense of healed up. They stumble, they fall, they scratch themselves, they hurt themselves. They need the, the shepherd there to take care of them. So as Jesus looks upon them, his heart is moved with compassion as they're weary and they're scattered and he sees them all over and here's the question. What is God moving on your heart right now? Is God moving your heart in any way towards a people, a group, a place? What is he moving on you about? Because what I've found is that oftentimes when you pray about a thing and God moves on your heart about a thing, 
you're oftentimes the answer for the thing. <laughs> you're actually the answer. And so this is the, the, the spot that Jesus is, is at. He's looking at these people. And, and when we pray about the thing and God says, all right, you want someone to go in and do something about the situation, I did, I sent you. Then what's our immediate response, right? Back to meatloaf again. I can't do that. You, you haven't trained me. I'm not equipped. I don't know how to pray. Right? I don't know how to speak. Right? There's all these excuses. I don't know enough Bible. And yet, just like when he looked upon David, the only thing he really cared about at the end of the day was his heart. That's the only piece that really matters. What does your heart look like? Now then in verse 38, Jesus says, Therefore pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into the harvest. What we are called to do is we are called to pray for the harvest. And if you want a prayer for the harvest, I'm going to turn with you one last spot, Psalm 126. This one is highlighter worthy, at least in my Bible it is. Verse 5 and 6 says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so the promise here from God is for those who go out sowing, who, who go out weeping is, is, is the word of God. The, the seed, by the way, is the word of God. That's what we're called to sow into the lives of the people around us. We're called to sow that seed that as it's done in weeping, that when it comes harvest time, there's going to be great rejoicing. He who goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. And so here's the rules to sowing and reaping. That I put up here on the screen for you. Uh, there's just three things to remember. First of all, you reap the same kind that you sow. In other words, you don't go out and plant corn and reap tomatoes. Any farmers in the room would understand that. That's, that's obvious, but, but that's important for us to understand that if I want to have the harvest that I'm looking for, James would say uh, uh, the peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. So if I want to harvest righteousness, I have to actually sow in peace. And so the, the words that we sow into people's lives, those things are going to be reaped. We're going to reap the same kind that we sow. Secondly, you always reap after you sow. No one goes out and plants an entire field and goes back the next day to harvest. That doesn't even make sense. It's nonsensical. And so the harvest always takes place later. And so the encouragement there is one of perseverance, to continue on in, in, in our sowing because the harvest always takes place afterwards. And then thirdly, you always reap more than you sow. 30, some 60, some 100 fold. The increase is all up to God though. Do you understand that? It's not on us to provide the increase. Our job is to sow seeds. Sow seeds everywhere you can. Sow seeds at the, at the Walmart. Sow seeds at the Aldi's in your family. And here's the promise that we see from Psalm 126 is that as you sow in those hard spots, as you sow in tears with that family member that will not listen, as you sow with that coworker that will not hear you, and you're in tears to the Lord, do you understand the promise here? It's that you shall reap in joy. That one day, and it's coming soon, one day there's going to be a harvest. And when that harvest happens, it's going to be joy. It's going to be unspeakable joy throughout all the kingdom. And so this is the promise, and it's important to understand that it's all increased 
by God. He's the one that provides. And so, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promise that we get from it that as we, as we sow and seemingly our words fall on deaf ears, that it seems like oftentimes no one is hearing the message and we feel like it's futile and we want to quit. That the promises here of reaping and sowing are that we will reap the same kind that we sow and that we will reap after we sow and that you will provide an increase. And so we praise you for that, Father. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. I pray that, that what was meant for each person is settled in, that that seed is actually the thing that seeks, that sinks in. And so if there are any that are struggling with, with, with healing, that they would be willing to come forward and ask for that, Lord. We, we know that you don't always heal in every situation physically, but you always heal in every situation spiritually. And if there are those that are afraid that their mess is too bloody, too messed up, too far gone, that, that they would know they can be released today of that. Because none of these problems, not from a woman who had bled for 12 years to where every doctor couldn't heal it, no matter how much money she spent, it couldn't be healed, but you healed her with one touch. So Lord, we praise you for that. Father, please give us the ability to just have our faith drawn out, just ever so slightly, to come to you so that we can be healed. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you please stand as we sing our closing song? Build your kingdom here. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil while we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope Like wildfire in our very souls Holy Spirit, come invade us now We are your church We need your power in us We seek your kingdom's we hunger and we thirst, refuse to waste our lives, for your our joy and prize. To see the captives' hearts release, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace. We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We your church we pray revive this earth build your kingdom here let the darkness fear show your mighty hand heal our streets and land set your church on fire with this nation that change the atmosphere, build your kingdom here. We pray, unleash.
your kingdom's power reaching the near and far no force of hell can stop your beauty changing hearts you made us for much more than this awake the kingdom seed in us fill us with the strength and love of christ we are your church we are the whole on earth build your kingdom here let the darkness free show your mighty hand heal our streets and land set your church on fire with this nation back change the atmosphere Build your kingdom here, we pray. And the church says, amen. Well, thank you guys for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Uh, praying a special blessing on 2021 for you and all your families. Uh, if you need prayer for anything at all, uh, I'll be up front. Uh, if not, God bless you. See you next week.